This message was presented at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org. Greetings. Welcome to this um, presentation on medical missionary work and lessons from sacred history. This is part of the six um, presentations that Pastor Wayne Cablano and uh, myself, Dr. John Tricotta, will do. And it's uh, the second in the series. The first that we just finished was the Bible and Spirit of Prophecy Foundation for the connection between the medical missionary work and the three angels' message. And if you're interested in that uh, or any of our lectures um, or the slides, then you can get a hold of all that material by sending an email to amedicalministry at gmail.com. If you send an email to amedicalministry at gmail.com, you'll get an auto-response that will include links to about 30 different things you could pull off, and each one of those labeled with, um, uh, you know, titles that will tell you what you're getting, uh, including our slides and the various presentations uh, that we have in presenters' notes, etc. So, let's go ahead and bow our head. Father in heaven, again we turn our thoughts to you, and we seek for your spirit to guide and direct us. <clears throat> we seek for your presence to be here. We can do nothing of ourselves, and so we just ask that you will work here this morning. We lay our lives before you, and uh, we just commit ourselves to you. And we ask that you help us to understand lessons from history so we do not repeat the mistakes of history. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so this topic, lessons from sacred history, has one major point, a theme that floats through the whole presentation. The theme is self sacrificing love and service. It's love that works for others. The whole purpose of this lesson is to point out some of the failures that, that we as a people going back in time into sacred history have, have made. And it can be a hard thing to look at, but it's with a purpose. Because by recognizing these negative things that can happen, we can choose another way. And that's our goal, is to choose another way. The Scripture says, rebuke a wise man and he will thank you for it. And so today we want to look at some of these very difficult and hard to hear things about our history, because it's not pleasant for us to take according to ourselves. Say, I wasn't part of that, that was history. That's true. And that's the whole concept, is to be able to choose that way around those mistakes of the people of God in the past. The, the Bible is faithful to chronicle those errors that we have made, and we can actually use that material the way they were intended to be used to be a blessing and an uplifting point for ourselves to avoid those mistakes. So I'd like to start uh, by saying this, this, this second and the first part of the three angels' message are extremely strong warnings for the world and for God's people at the end of time. Warnings against following the world's methods, principles, and practices. And Essentially, it's a, it's, a, it's a warning against false opinions 
opinions that are not of God. So Revelation 14, 8 through 10 is the one that talks about Babylon being fallen, that great city who made all nations drink the wrath of her fornication, wine of the wrath of her fornication, and this really strong third angel's warning against false worship. False worship in the terms of bowing down, maybe, but also possibly false worship of following my own direction and worshiping my own thoughts and processes. Those who don't learn the lessons from history, are, we're, we, would be re, we would be repeating them and we'd be doomed to repeat the same issues again if we didn't know what errors they had made. And so we as a people, if we can avoid using worldly means to accomplish sacred ends, we will avoid suffering both of ourselves and be more effective for God. So we're going to take a look at three lessons, historic lessons with modern-day uh, uh, parallels and, and lessons for us. Uh, but first, let me just read Testimonies of Ministers, page 31. It says, We are now a strong people. That's a good statement. If we will put our trust in the Lord, for we are handling the mighty truths of the Word of God. We have everything to be thankful for. If we walk in the light as it shines upon us from the living oracles of God, we shall have large responsibilities corresponding with the great light given us of God. We have many duties to perform because we have been made the depositories of what? Of sacred truth to be given to the world in all its beauty and glory. We are debtors to God to use every advantage He has entrusted to us to beautify the truth by holiness of character and to send the messages of warning and of comfort, of hope and love to those who are in the darkness and air of sin. We want to focus on the reality of these statements. We have been made depositories of the sacred truths to be given to this world in all its beauty and glory. That is what has been given to you and to me. We have a sacred obligation to God. How are we going to handle these truths that God has given us? So the first lesson that we're going to learn from is the lesson, the lesson of the fall of Israel. The lesson of the fall of Israel. Have you ever wondered, as I did when I was new in the faith, way back in high school, here you have the nation of Israel with, with God as the head, a theocracy given to God as a people with a special message, and a special message to be able to share with the world. This group of people given a special place amongst the world so that they could share what God would have them to share. But in a single generation, they went from the greatest and most influential nation on earth directly under God to a broken and divided nation without a place to stand, in a single generation. And it's the lesson that came from that fall that we want to focus on today because it really is, it, it gives us great direction. If you turn to Patriarchs and Prophets, you'll find three key principles that were involved in the fall of the nation of Israel that we want to focus in on. And those three principles 
were these. Number one, they lost the spirit of self-sacrifice. Number two, they took to themselves the glory that was due to God alone. And number three, they lost their missionary zeal and turned great opportunities for witness into opportunities for commerce. To gain a buck. This is what caused the fall of that great nation with its missionary purpose. Israel was the greatest and most wealthy nation at the time, during the time of Solomon's reign. But he fell in that one generation. And these key elements were the thing that caused it. So the first principle, let's go them one by one and see how these developed. The principle number one, they lost the spirit of self-sacrifice. Well, how could that happen with all that they had been given? You would think with great, with great blessings would came, come great responsibility and great response to the Lord. Well, I'll share with you the beginning of it. You see, with the laying of the foundation of the temple was the very beginning of that error which caused the downfall of the nation. As the foundation was laid, the error was made that caused the downfall of the nation of Israel. You see, Solomon, in order to build this great temple, called Hiram, the king of Tyre. He asked him to help him build the temple of God of Israel. And Hiram sent a man by the name of Huram, who was of mixed heritage, a mixed religious background. In Second Chronicles chapter 2, verses 13 and 14, it says, And now I have sent, I, I have sent a skillful man endowed with understanding, Huram, my master craftsman, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre. So he was of what? Mixed heritage. Okay? Skilled to work in gold and silver, bronze and iron, stone and wood, purple and, and, and blue, fine linen and crimson, and to make every engra any engraving and to accomplish any plan which may be given him with your skillful men and with the skillful men of my Lord David, your father. So what you have is you have the people of God with a spiritual motive and the people of the world with a worldly motive mixed in one person. That's the mix. That's the, that's the mix that we have, mixing worldly and spiritual in one person. In Prophets and Kings, page 63, Huram was a descendant on his mother's side of Aholiab, to whom hundreds of years before God had given special wisdom for the construction of the, that was the wilderness tabernacle. He's well connected. In Patriarchs and Prophets, commenting on that on page 63, it says, the descendants of these workmen inherited to a large degree the talents conferred on their forefathers. For a time, these men of Judah and Dan remained humble and unselfish. But gradually, almost imperceptibly, they lost their hold upon God and their desire to serve Him unself. Serve Him how? Unselfishly. They asked, notice this, they asked higher wages for their services because of their superior skill and workmen, as workmen in the fine arts. Um, in some instances, their request was granted, but more often they found employment 
in the surrounding, outside of Israel, outside of the church. In place of the noble spirit of self-sacrifice that had filled the hearts of their illustrious ancestors, they indulged in a spirit of covetousness, of grasping for more and more, that their selfish desires might be gratified. They used their God-given skill in the service of heathen kings and lent their talents to the perfecting of works which were a dishonor to their maker. These men whom God had given special talents with the intent to bless his own people instead employed their talents for the building and the beautification of temples of foreign gods. Using that which was meant for the sacred, instead putting it to worldly gain. And rather than serving the Lord with it, serving heathen kings. In Prophets and Kings, page 63 It says, thus at the head of Solomon's company of workmen, there was placed a man whose efforts were not prompted by the unselfish desire to render service to God. He served the God of this world, mammon. The very fibers of his being were inwrought with the principles of selfishness. See, the differences between those motivated by the spirit of selfless sacrifice for the worship of God became evident in a very practical way in the differences of wages demanded for their work. The idea is unusual skill demands higher wage. Charge what the market will bear. This one issue set into effect a whole chain of events that led to the further degradation of God's people and the eventual fall of the nation of Israel. Patriarchs and Prophets. Or Prophets and Kings, probably page 64, says, Because of, this unusual, of his unusual skill, Hiram demanded large wages. Gradually, the wrong principles that he cherished came to be accepted by his associates. As they labored with him day after day, they yielded to the inclination to compare his wages with their own. And they began to lose sight of the holy character of their work. The spirit of self-denial left them. And in its place came the spirit of covetousness. The result was a demand for higher wages, which was granted. So you have the effect of one man who came to the nation to build a temple to God. And he began to infiltrate his principles into the minds of those that were directly associated with him. Not yet to the, to the children of Israel as a whole, but to those who were closest to him initially. You go down to Prophets and Kings, page 64. The baleful influences thus set in operation permeated all branches of the Lord's service and extended then throughout the kingdom The high wages demanded and received gave to many an opportunity to indulge in luxury and extravagance. The poor were oppressed by the rich, and the spirit of self-sacrifice was well nigh lost. In the far-reaching effects of these influences may be traced one of the principal causes of the terrible apostasy of him who was once numbered amongst the wisest of mortals." Going on in that same page, it says, The sharp contrast between the spirit and motives of the people building the wilderness temple back in Moses' day. So the contrast there 
and those engaged in erecting Solomon's temple in Solomon's day has a lesson of deep significance. The self-seeking that characterized the workers on the temple finds its counterpart when? Today. In the selfishness that rules in the world, the spirit of covetousness, of seeking for the highest position and the highest wage is rife or is rampant, you might say. We are talking about medical missionary work and the three angels' message, the work that's to change the character of the people of God and help them to represent the character of God at the end of time. We're talking about lessons from sacred history that will teach us to avoid that which caused the fall of the nation of Israel. It is a spirit of self-seeking and self-exaltation that, started, that, would, that actually started the fall of the nation of Israel. And the issue here where selfless and self-sacrificial service and devotion is, is contrasted to a desire for grasping higher wages. The spirit of those who built Solomon's temple were totally different than that self-sacrificing, giving spirit of devotion that those who built the temple in the wilderness had. You see, in the wilderness, God instructed Moses to accept only free will offerings. But as you will see, this method that Solomon chose, this, these issues began to permeate the entire nation in a different way than the wilderness temple was built you'd find the, the Temple of Solomon built. Because of these free will offerings, the, the spirit that dominated the nation at the time was a holy and sacred spirit. And the principle was that the, the most routine and mundane menial task done in a spirit of sacrifice and a spirit of devotion is accepted by God as worship. Right. Your work becomes your worship. That's right. So, principle number two. Solomon first, and then the nation as a whole, took to themselves also the glory that was due to God alone. The temple that was built in God's name became known as Solomon's temple. Prophets and Kings, page 65, another of the de deviations from the right principles that finally led to the downfall of Israel's king was his yielding to the temptation to take to himself the glory that belongs to God alone. Going on, from the day that Solomon was entrusted to the work of building the temple to the time of his comple its completion, he avowed purpose was to build an house for the name of the Lord God of Israel. This purpose was fully recognized before the assembly, the assembled host of Israel at the time of the dedication of the temple. In his prayer, the king acknowledged that Jehovah had said, My name shall be there. And the next page, page 66, that same chapter. In behalf of every one of these stranger worshipers, Solomon had petitioned, Hear thou, and do according to all that the stranger calleth to thee for, that all the people of the earth may know thy name to fear thee, as do thy people Israel. And that they may know that this house which I have builded is called by thy name. Prophets and Kings, page 68. 
Had Solomon continued in humility of mind to turn the attention of men from himself to the one who had given him wisdom and riches and honor, what a history might have been his. But when, while the pen of inspiration records his virtues, it also bears faithful witness to his downfall. Raised to the pinnacle of greatness and surrounded by the gifts of fortune, Solomon became dizzy, lost his balance, and fell. Constantly extolled by the men of the world, he was at length unable to withstand the flattery that was offered to him. The wisdom entrusted to him that might glorify the giver filled him with pride. He finally permitted men to speak of him as the one most worthy of praise. For the matchless splendor of the building planned and erected for the honor of the name of the God of Israel. Page 64. Thus it was that the temple of Jehovah came to be known throughout the nations as Solomon's temple. The human agent had taken to himself the glory that belonged to the one higher than the highest. Even to his, this day, the temple which Solomon de dedicated, this house which I have built, is called by thy name, is oftenest spoken of not as the temple of Jehovah, but as Solomon's temple. You see, slowly and perhaps maybe imperceptibly at first, the great nation of Israel started the downward journey. People literally worshipped Solomon's wisdom and might. But this was not the way that Solomon was at first. At first, he would turn their attention and praise to God. He would focus their attention heavenward. But eventually, Solomon took and the nation of Israel with him took to themselves the glory due to God alone. The spirit of pride took over. And thus you have the second great principle that caused the fall of the nation of Israel from its high and holy calling to a broken and divided nation. The second principle. So now let's go to the third principle. They lost their missionary zeal. You see... The missionary spirit was eventually supplanted by a spirit of commercialism. They took the opportunities that God had given them by being planted in the crossroads of the nation and turned those opportunities into opportunities for commerce. They used the blessings of God that He had given them to dispense to the world and consume them themselves. And they used them for selfish, selfish purposes. The blessings of God used to make a buck. Placed in the midst of the nations, all the different nations had to go through Israel. And they had a unique place in the world given to them by God and a unique message to bring to the world with unique opportunities to share it. Prophets and Kings, page 70, God has designed that His people should be the light of the world. From them was to shine forth the glory of his law as revealed in the life practice. For the carrying out of this design, he caused the chosen nation to occupy a strategic position among the nations of the earth. And then going on, through this territory ran many natural highways of the world's commerce. 
Caravans from distant lands were constantly passing to and fro, and there was given to Solomon and the people an opportunity to reveal to the men of all nations the character of the king of kings, and to teach them to reverence and to obey him. To all the world, this knowledge was to be given. Through the teachings of the sacrificial offerings, Christ was to be uplifted before the nations that all who would might live. Then on page 71, Solomon lost sight of his high purpose. He failed of improving the splendid opportunities for enlightening those who were continually passing through his territory and tarrying in its principal cities. The missionary spirit that God had implanted in the heart of Solomon in the hearts of all true Israelites was supplanted by a spirit of commercialism. The opportunities afforded by contact with many nations were used for personal aggrandizement. The commercial advantages of an outlet at the head of the Red Sea were developed. The revenue of the king and of his many subjects was greatly increased, but at what a cost? Through the cupidity and the short-sightedness of those to whom had been entrusted the oracles of God, the countless multitudes who thronged the highways of travel were allowed to remain in ignorance of Jehovah. I don't know if you're following this. Have we lost you? We, yeah. Well, how does this relate to medical missionary work? It's coming. And here it is. In striking contrast to the course pursued by Solomon with, his, with the course followed by Christ when he was on this earth, the Savior, though possessing all power, never used his power for self-aggrandizement. No dream of earthly conquest, of worldly greatness, marred the perfection of his service for mankind. Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, he said, but the Son of Man hath not where to lay his head. Those who, in response to the call of the hour, have entered the service of the master worker may well study his what? His methods. He took advantage of the opportunities to be found along the great thoroughfares of travel. We're talking about a theme that runs through all presentations that we were to give. The theme of self-sacrificing love and benevolent service. And that theme, one to follow in Christ, the theme is the one we would like to focus on. And do, take a minute and just draw the comparison with the medical practice of today. Think about it today. I'm a physician. I'm a physician who works doing medical ministry. And I recognize in my own, my own trade, if you will, the nation of Israel fall, fell from three things. They, they fell because they had lost their spirit of self-sacrifice. They fell because they had taken to themselves the glory due to God alone. They fell because they had, they had, um, lost, they lost the missionary. They zeal. lost their missionary zeal. As I see medicine today, tell me where we are in medical terms. Have we lost our, our sense of self-sacrifice and yet 
replaced it with a sense of entitlement? Have we, have we taken to ourselves the, the glory due to God alone using the God complex? Have, have, we, we, have, we made, have we made medical missionary work a way of earning a buck and, and becoming wealthy? And in the end, have we, have we lost our missionary zeal, turning an opportunity for witness into opportunities for commerce, which allows the people that throng our communities to remain in ignorance to the God of heaven? Now, it's not just the, the, the work of the physicians that can do this. Even amongst our churches, I want to be the church who's known as this kind of a church. We want to be well-known, to be part of something grand, oftentimes. And so because of that, the underlying motive, although not as clearly stated as in maybe a medical field, it can be that we lose our sense of self-sacrifice in order to be part of something grand. In order to, to bring to ourselves the glory which is due to God alone. Yes, I'm part of that church, and we have this ministry. In order to, to take to ourselves that which we should not have. And you don't have to get paid by making a dollar. You can get paid by influence. You can get paid by reputation. So these kinds of things we want to learn from because they're subtle and they cause the fall of Israel. We want to be like Jesus and take his example in our own hands so we can follow his will and continue as the last day message comes from our lips. We can use the faith of Jesus to develop the character of Jesus in loving, sacrificial, benevolent service. All right. do, you, do you follow us where we're going now? Okay. You're welcome. Okay, you're on. Five, seven. In the intervals of his journeys to and fro, Jesus dwelt at Capernaum, which was known as his own city, Situated on the highway from Damascus to Jerusalem and Egypt to the Mediterranean Sea, it was well adapted for the center of the Savior's work. People from many lands passed through the city and tarried for rest. There Jesus met with those of all nations and all ranks. And thus his lessons were carried to other countries and into many households. By this means, interest was aroused in the prophecies pointing forward to the Messiah. Attention was directed to the Savior and his mission was brought before the world. This is in stark contrast to the work of an entire nation. This work of Jesus in one little location was a micro picture of what the nation of Israel was to do. So what Ellen White is doing here is contrasting Solomon and the principles that were developed in the kingdom there that brought that kingdom down, contrasting that with Jesus Christ and the principles. And that's what we're trying to bring out to you here today. In this, our day, the opportunities for coming into contact with men and women of all classes and many nationalities are much greater than in the days of Israel. The thoroughfares of travel have multiplied a thousandfold. Like Christ, the messengers of the Most High today should take their position in the great thoroughfares where they can meet the passing multitudes from all parts of the world, like him, hiding self in God, there to sow the gospel seed, presenting before others the precious truths of Holy Scripture that will take deep root in mind and heart 
and spring up into life eternal. Now let me ask you, John, how many people go through a typical physician's office in a year or in a physician's lifetime? The average physician will see between 100,000 and 400,000 people in their life. One physician. We graduate hundreds of physicians just from one medical school, and there are others. And it's not just the physicians, by the way, but how many people will go through our churches in our, or go drive by our communities that could be drawn into our churches by the service of our people taking care of their felt needs right. in a beneficent, loving, and sacrificial way. Amen. You see what a terrible loss that was? If you, if you, if you think about the contrast between Israel and, and Jesus, the example of Jesus, what a terrible loss Israel sustained when you see what the high and holy calling was that they could have achieved? It was a terrible fall from the height of the time of Solomon down to the nation where it no longer even had a mission anymore. It no longer had a message. Its purpose was now had to be fulfilled in suffering in a way that they had, well, God did not plan for them to have to do. So that was history, and we can learn from that lesson. Uh, very interesting quote in Last Day Events. We have nothing to fear for the future except we forget the way that the Lord has led us and His teachings in our past history. You see, the Seventh-day Adventist health ministry was placed at the very crossroads of humanity. Everybody has need for health. It's everywhere. And both our professional component and our church-based component can serve in this benefit. By divine providence, we have been given the privilege of being blessed with being in contact with every level of society. Male or female, rich or poor, everybody needs this thing addressed, this health in their lives addressed. And so the question is whether we allow people to pass by our offices or our churches to remain in ignorance to Jehovah. How do you get in touch with them? How do you, how do you contact them? How do you make a difference in their lives so they even want to have something, something to do with you? You serve them in loving sacrifice and benevolence. You do the work of Jesus, and that is all that's necessary. The broad meaning of what that says, but it's all that's necessary. The work of Jesus. We change our... Our characters are changed by the faith of Jesus. So the question is, we have been made depositories of divine truth, given a special place among the nations, and an eternal purpose to serve. Do I sacrifice? The, question, the, the, the problem was in the beginning that Israel lost its sense of self-sacrifice. Do I sacrifice? Maybe it's wages I look for. Maybe it's prestige. Maybe it's honor. Maybe it's influence. Maybe publicity for my program or the fact that my church had this ministry. Do I take to myself or my health ministries team, maybe even just my local church, the glory that was due to God alone? Let's take a look at a second story from, from sacred history. Let's turn to the story of Jesus as he cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. You remember how it was that people were using the temple as a shortcut to accomplish their own goals. They were using the 
the, the temple for buying and selling for their own commercial uh, benefit, making merchandise of the gospel of God, taking what God has given us for a blessing to others and using it for personal gain. Notice Matthew 21, verses 12 to 14 says, Then Jesus went into the temple of God and drove out all those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the temples, the, the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. Then the blind and the lame came to him in the temple. And he healed them. You know, we... I could get off. The blind and the lame. They're not pretty. They're not influential. They don't have a lot of money. And do we often not pay much attention to them? But they're the ones who came to Jesus. I'm going to read the same story from a different, um, different gospel, Mark 11. So they came to Jerusalem, and then Jesus went into the temple, and they began to drive out those who bought and sold in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold doves. And he would not allow anyone to carry wares through the temple. And then he taught them, saying, it is, not, is it not written that my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations? You have made it a den of thieves. And in John chapter 2, <clears throat> now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. When he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out the changers' money and overturned the tables. And he said to those who sold doves, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of what? Of merchandise. Jesus saw the temple as being desecrated with commonness. That which was a glory to God was made a mode of gaining an income. Now, those guys weren't just helping the worshipers accomplish the worship of God in a needful way. These, these guys were making good money on the house of God. They weren't just helping to meet the needs of worshipers. They were making money hand over fist. And in the process, they were touching sacred things, but with common hands. They had lost the awe of God in their pursuit of the common, and it is dangerous to treat that which is holy and sacred with common hands. Now, the scriptures we just read demonstrated that some were not making money in the temple. Some of them were just using the sacred grounds as a shortcut. They were carrying goods to the house of God. They were using the temple of God as a shortcut to get to where they wanted to go. They were not trying to make money off the temple. They just wanted to use it their way without a sense of its sacredness. And Jesus drove them out. In the book, Spirit of Prophecy, Volume 3, it says, Jesus had taken his position as guardian of the temple 
Jesus, in taking charge of the temple court, had wrought there a wonderful change. He had banished the buyers and sellers, the money changers and the cattle, and would not suffer that any man should carry any vessel through the temple. So sacred did the world's Redeemer regard the building dedicated to the worship of God. So is there a lesson here for us? Could it be that we would use the temple of God to make money, hand over fist? To use the opportunities for witness to help people to understand the God of the tabernacle as a method to make a buck? To getting rich or have influence? Or to receive to ourselves a reputation? Now, maybe we've never tried to get rich off the temple of God. But have we ever used the temple of God for our own purposes the way we wanted to without a sense of its sacredness? Taking shortcuts to get to where we wanted to go ourselves but not considering what God meant for his temple to be. Possibly even destroying our own health using practices, substance or, or lifestyle issues. Maybe even just working too hard. Maybe just not sleeping, staying up too late, getting on the internet, eating too much or too little. All of that destroying our health. You see, Jesus didn't appreciate those any more than he appreciates the money changers or those who are carrying wares through the temple. So, a very difficult thing to watch and to see and apply to myself, it hits my heart and my soul. But that's what history is for, is to teach us to avoid the mistakes of the past. And by listening to what God has said to me, I can avoid it. Even if I made the mistakes in the past, I can avoid it now that I know. And that's the purpose of looking at sacred history, to make sure that I have the opportunity for change. One more story, and we'll finish. And the context of this story is a man who was a prophet of God, the prophet Balaam. Balaam was a prophet of God, known as God's prophet, and he was a prophet that was willing to curse the people of God for a dollar. Remember, the theme that runs through all these presentations is the theme of self-sacrificing love and service. And again, contrasting Balaam in this way. So let's turn to Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, which talks about the church of Pergamos in the seven churches of Revelation. The church of Pergamos was the church that fell into deep apostasy. Notice what it says about this church, what Jesus says about it. They have a heart trained in covetous practices and are accursed children. They have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, and loved the wages of unrighteousness, but he was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice uh, restrained the madness of the prophet. And uh, in Jude chapter, there's only one chapter. <laughs> There's not 11 chapters in Jude. <laughs> uh, I think it's verse, uh, verse 11 in Jude. Woe to them, for they have gone 
in the way of Cain have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit and perished in the rebellion of Korah. And then in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 15, they have forsaken the right way and gone astray, following the way of Balaam, the son of Peor, who loved the wages of unrighteousness. One more statement about Balaam. Joshua 13 and verse 2, the children of Israel also killed with the sword Balaam, the son of Peor, the soothsayer among those who were killed by the sword. So Balaam eventually, because of his greed, lost his life. So Balaam was able to make prophecy, but he was greedy for gain, for fame, for influence. And here is a key element. Balaam was willing to see the people of God cursed again in order to make a buck. Willing to curse the very people of God to make a buck. And he was eventually killed fighting the people of God. He fought against his own folk and, the, and, and God and because he loved to make the wages of unrighteousness. Because he was greedy looking to make a profit. And this is a terrible lesson. We need to call our professionals and our pastors to decide where they stand on this line. You see, today, many physicians and pastors seem willing to see the people of God cursed with the worst evil. And we'll explain what that means, what I'm talking about. But they're willing to do this in order to make a buck as a physician to retain possibly even their influence as a pastor. They're willing to see the people of God cursed. These were the same things that were offered to Balaam. Money, pride, influence, power. He was willing to curse the people of God for his own brethren of Israel. And today, modern-day physicians and pastors may still receive the wages of Balaam, the prophet who died while fighting against the people of God. Here's that passage that we talked about before. Medical Ministry, page 241. My brethren, the Lord calls for unity, for oneness. We are to be one in the faith. I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united. And by the way, let me just pause there. That's why Dr. John and I are doing this together. We want to not just talk about it, we want to demonstrate that we are united. We're one together. But, going back, I want to tell you that when the gospel ministers and the medical missionary workers are not united, there is placed on our churches, what? the worst evil that can be placed there. Our medical missionaries ought to be interested in the work of our conferences, and our conference workers are to be as much interested in the work of our medical missionaries. Now let me ask you, do you know Mrs. White, to exaggerate? She said the words... The worst evil. I mean, it 
it conjures up in my mind the, the thought of the first evil. Pride, arrogance, territorialism, selfishness. I will rise. I will place my throne above the stars. I will be as God. Do you see this happening sometimes in our own churches? Do you see this happening sometimes amongst our own committees? Do you see this happening amongst our own people? You see, this is the worst evil, and it is currently happening in some places because we have allowed the medical missionary workers to be separated from the gospel missionary workers, and by doing so have called upon our own people the worst of evils. And not in, notice, it's not in our clinics, and it's not in our hospitals. It is in our churches. Medical Ministry 24 or 25, nothing will help us more at this stage of our work than to understand and fulfill the mission of the greatest medical missionary that has ever trod the earth. Nothing will help us more than to realize how sacred is this kind of work and how perfectly it corresponds with the life work of the great missionary. The object of our mission is the same as the object of Christ's mission. Why did God send his son to the fallen world? To make known and to demonstrate to mankind his love for them. Why is that necessary? Because when we see the love of God, our characters are transformed. God's purpose in committing to men and women the mission that he committed to Christ is to disentangle his followers from all worldly policy and to give them a work identical with the work that Christ did. All heaven is looking on with intense interest to see what character the medical missionary work will assume under the supervision of human beings. Will men make merchandise of God's ordained plan for reaching the dark parts of the earth with a manifestation of His benevolence? Will they cover mercy with selfishness and call it medical missionary work? We need to respond like David did. Lord, be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. This is a call to repentance for the people of God, to recognize like they did when they found the law in the temple, to realize, what have we been doing? Where have we been? And we could have messed it up then, but instead they humbled themselves and they came to God in repentance. And God said, I will bless for it. If we will see our faults and the faults of our people from the Bible times until now, we can choose another way. That is the lesson from history. We can choose another way. We are calling you to do what our forefathers failed to do. To make this part of what you understand and to make a choice on it. To choose to serve the Lord in South sacrificing love and benevolence for the people around you. This is the lesson of history for God's people today. We're calling you to do more than you are able with your own human effort, in fact. We want you to accomplish that which is on the, God, on the order of God's ability. Because it's God, not you, who is to accomplish it. To allow God to work in you to accomplish his own actions. So we want to make a call to you today. 
by faith to let Jesus live out his life, his self-sacrificing love in your life, in your thoughts, your words. Are we able to do any better than those who went before us? We must. But we can do nothing of ourselves. Because you and I are just like those who have gone before us. We have hearts that are selfish, proud, self-ambitious. What do we need to do to walk across that threshold from the common and mundane to the miraculous? to the power of God. To a life that is, from a life that is just routine and regular to one that enters the realm of the miracle of God. What will it take? What practical and actionable mindset, activity, functions, direction can we take that will accomplish this goal? You know, John the Baptist is an example power equal to God because it was God's power and not man's power. And we're going to be dealing with the motive and the power this afternoon. Let me ask you, what could we compare the genuine Christian life to be like? What if we were to say that the life of the Christian was like a schoolboy who is learning to write cursive letters and is set before him the the perfect script that he's trying to to copy and the more he tries the closer he gets but it's still very imperfect would that be a good description of the christian life that we're trying to copy the master When you look at who the master is, it's impossible. It's impossible. So, there's no hope for us because all that dwells in us is not good, but all that dwells in him is the Godhead. And you can never, never successfully copy him. Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor my ways your ways, says the Lord. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways higher than yours, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. So if you would like to copy Christ and do it successfully, you have to have a power that's equal to that of God in your life. So let's take this illustration a step further. If the master instructor came along and he put his hand upon the hand of the boy. And he put his hand on him, and it was him directing the hand of the boy as he wrote those letters. Would that be a better illustration of the Christian life? Yes, 
but still not perfect. Because God does not want us to be just simple, um, what do I say, uh, automation. He created you a thinking, intelligent human being. So even though it's a step closer, it's still not the truth. He would just be a very mechanical. So even though we have to die to ourselves, our sinful nature, and yield ourselves in instruments of righteousness, God does not treat us as a lifeless object to be used. The Christian life is pure and simply the life of Christ. If the master instructor put all of his own skill, put all of his own ability, put all of his own thoughts and power into that boy, and then that boy began to write, and it was, it was perfect. Yet, instead of the master doing the writing, um, he's, not just, he's not just imitating the master, but it's the master's own writing. Yet it's the free and joyous acts of the boy. There we would have an excellent illustration of the Christian life. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to do his good pleasure. In Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. In the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And he who abides in him also ought to walk just as he walked. And how is it that he walked? John 14, 10, Do you not believe that I am the Father and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who does what? The Father who dwells in me does the works. Christ has given you the copy, but instead of standing off and watching you try to imitate him, he comes gladly into your heart, becomes one with you, so that his life is your life. And his acts are your acts. This is life, your Christian life. And our final reference, Desire of Ages 668 well known to you possibly. All true obedience comes from the heart. It was heart work with Christ. If we consent, he will so identify himself with our thoughts and aims, so blend our hearts and minds into conformity with his will that when obeying him, we shall be but carrying out our own impulses. The will, refined, sanctified, will find its highest delight in doing his service. When we know God, as it is our privilege to know Him, our life will be a life of continual obedience through an appreciation of the character of Christ. Through communion with God, sin will become hateful 
to us. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we thank you so much that you've given us lessons. These are hard lessons to bear, painful to see. Lord, it's easy for us to feel blamed even, but you know, Lord, that wasn't your purpose. Your purpose was to warn us of the, the obstacles and the downfalls so that we might have life and be with you. We pray that you'll help us to take to our hearts the lessons you have taught us and to, uh, to uh, appeal to our own yearning love and desire, Lord, for you in response to what you've given. Change us, Lord, to your character. Help us to be molded so that you are fully living in us. Thank you, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. This message was recorded at the GYC 2015 conference called Chosen Faithful in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to inspire young people to be Bible-based, Christ-centered, and soul-winning Christians. To download or purchase other resources like this, visit us online at www.gycweb.org.